0: So as most of you know, I grew up going to church. Um, it's just sort of a thing our family did. So when Palm Sunday came around, I was used to them lining, lining all the kids up you know, out there and they'd give you a palm branch and then they'd shuffle you down the, the middle of the aisle and you're supposed to wave and shout, which is awesome, because you're not allowed to shout in church. Our church right, is usually seated quiet, right? it, it, very appropriate, very proper people. And, you know, I mean, I knew the story of Jesus. I knew it all very well, the story of him going to Jerusalem. But I never thought much of it because parades are dumb. Like, they are just so boring. There's nothing worse than being dragged to a parade. People just walking by. I mean, Jesus is cool and all. And so I could get why we would be celebrating Jesus and, and, you know, waving our hands and things like that. But in general, it just sort of was meaningless to me. And it might be that way for you this morning, and I I want to dispel that if I can, because I think there's a lot to be said, a lot of deep, meaningful things to be said. In fact, I think uh, very highly of what uh, Chuck said. Congratulations on doing some great uh, Hebrew and Greek work there. It is indeed a word that means save us, save us. And that is a twofold prayer. One is a petition to God. God, we are in danger. God, we are in need. When we say salvation, that means I am about to die. I need your help. And yet, there's also on the other side of that a fervent belief that when I say save us, God says, okay, I will. And so, as the crowds gather along, Uh, the road to which Jesus is traveling and they cry, save us. It means something real. It means something real. I want to paint in your mind's eye a picture, if if I can. If you close close your eyes, if that's easier for you, But, but I want you to imagine what it would have been like to experience this moment. Imagine that you live in a village, and everyone you know lives in a village, and there's small villages, maybe a couple of hundred people. The busiest day is like market day, or, or the Sabbath maybe, and one little one-room building is kind of cramped. That's the biggest crowd you ever see. That's the biggest building you ever see, except for this time of year, except for this time when you go to Jerusalem. And as you draw near to Jerusalem, you look up the hill, And on the hill you see the great wall circling the city. So high. See, nothing like that in your life. Above the wall you can see peaking the temple and some other buildings. And you hear the noise, just the noise. As, As you're miles away, you hear the noise. Because Jerusalem is crammed. And by crammed, I mean the most packed room you've ever been in. This whole place is so so packed with people that you're pushing and shoving to get through. So packed, in fact, that for two miles all the way down the hill, there's people camping. Two miles. That's how, that's how far you had to go to get room to set up your tent so your family had a place to stay. Two miles. Imagine the sight of it. Imagine the excitement of it. I, I don't know if you've ever been to a um, a conference maybe or, or a concert and, and everyone's there for one purpose. There's this one sense of purpose and everyone is singing or shouting or cheering. There's kind of that electricity in the room, you know what I'm talking about? Electricity in the room. And so there's all this excitement because this thing is huge and you're seeing something that you rarely ever see. And the crowd is so massive. But also everyone is there for one purpose. They're there to tell the story again. The story of God's deliverance, the story of God's salvation, the story that you've heard since you were a little child and growing all the way up, and here you are to tell it again to tell the story of how you and your people were in slavery, how you were oppressed, how you were crushed under the heel of the Egyptian boot, but how God in his power, in his might, through 10 terrible plagues, brought the mightiest empire with the mightiest army and the mightiest economy and the mightiest king to its knees. You tell that story again. You enact that story again. You go to the temple to worship with that story again. And and along the edges of this story are the whispers of the prophets. The prophets that say salvation is coming again. God is sending a new Moses. God will send a new David. God will send a new deliverer. God will send a new Savior. And you know and feel the power of that story and the power of those promises because as you travel up the road to Jerusalem, what meets your eyes? Crosses. Crosses. And as you look at the crosses, you know that's a Jew who's dead or dying. And that's what you pass on your way up to worship. And so when you come to the side of the road to say, save us, you might be saying it next to a Roman cross. So as you tell the stories of God's power and God's deliverance and everyone is electrified and excited and you remember how God delivered you from the heel of the Egyptian boot and you look up at a Roman cross, what are you thinking of? Oh, salvation. A new king? And then you hear stories of this This dude, Jesus, who like a day or two before, raised a dead guy. He was dead for three days. And he raised him up. Do you hear how he fed 4,000 people? Do you hear how he fed 5,000 people? Do you hear how he's like casting out demons? Do you hear how he stuck it in the eye of those Pharisees, those Sadducees, those rich elite people? Do you see him? Man, this place that Jesus is going to walk into is a powder keg. There is so much intensity, so much electricity, there's so much hope, there's so much frustration, there's so much anger, there's so much religion. Man, this is more intense than a Trump rally. (laughs) More intense, all that stuff you're seeing, take it and amplify it by a couple thousand people. Jesus gets to Bethany, which is about two miles down the hill, and he sends his disciples in and he says, go find find a colt that's tied up. And bring it to me. Now this tells us something. This tells us that Jesus didn't just happen to get tired. and Didn't just happen to see a donkey. Didn't just happen to jump on it and say, well, I guess I'll ride this up the hill. No, Jesus is planning something. And this is what the prophets did. They didn't just preach. They didn't just speak. They acted. They demonstrated something. And it was through their action, it was through their demonstration, that they were able to communicate a message that God had for his people. And so the question that we ask this morning is what is the message Jesus is hoping to convey? Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. For those of you who aren't real familiar with uh, the scriptures, that's okay. That's one of those minor prophet books that we rarely spend a lot of time in. Zechariah 9, 9 says this it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion, shout aloud. O daughter, Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. That word, you know, righteous, we say it, it means right action, but it also means justice. And when you look up at a Roman cross, don't you want justice? Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble mounted on a donkey, on the colt, a foal of a donkey. Now, as I said, uh, parades are lame. This is always true. Um, but it was also a terrifying thing to have a parade. Caesar would come to your town, come to your city, come to your capital city especially, and you either opened the doors to him and you let him in, or he knocked them down. If you're smart, you open them up. Because if he knocks them down... Bad things happen, right? And so when we think of a parade, I I don't want you to have in your mind sort of the Thanksgiving Macy's Day parade where they basically just do Broadway shows and show commercials and people talking these days. Uh, But I want you to think of a king who has in front of him, when he comes to parade through your town, the people who are in front of him, those are your defenders. Those are the people from your city. That's your army that he has subjugated They're bloody, they're broken, they're probably naked and chained, and he drives them before his own mighty white steed, dressed in his fine armor, and behind him, his armies. This is what a parade looked like. This is what power looks like, right? When you want to defeat your enemy, do you love them? No, that's stupid. No one won a war by loving people. No one took over the world by being the most merciful person in the world. No one inherited a business, a country, a crown, a throne by being the meekest. Jesus is declaring something unheard of. Something that has never been seen. Something that is so countercultural, counterintuitive, counter everything that it needs the power of God to see it done. And so there's something powerful that's happening here, powerful in its proclamation, because Jesus is using this text of Zechariah 9 9 and demonstrating the truth. He is saying, I have arrived, I am righteous, I am salvation, I am your king. And I got to stop us there for a second. Because when I say king, I'm afraid that what you hear me saying is king of your heart. I'm not saying that. You might be thinking king of heaven. I'm not saying that. You might be thinking king of the future, king of the spiritual realm, king of some unseen area that I might end up in when I'm dead. I'm not saying that. And neither is Jesus. Jesus. When he shows up on the scene to declare, I am king, what does he mean? He means that he is the political ruler over this people. He is declaring himself to be king. Now, we have to be careful with this because I find so many Christians are confused on this point. We read in... um, John chapter 18, Jesus has this encounter, it'll happen on, on Friday, but, or uh, Thursday and Friday, uh, he has this encounter with Pilate, and Pilate asks him the question, he says, are you a king? And Jesus answers the question this way, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I would not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And so what have we taken from that? As Christians, over the centuries, we have taken that that there are two kingdoms. In fact, this comes from Martin Luther, Merrick, if you're still awake back there. You are, Martin Luther. This comes from Martin Luther's theology. It's been written into our DNA that there are two kingdoms. There is the political kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world, the kingdoms that are here right now. And then there is the spiritual kingdoms over which Jesus is king. But we recognize that there's other, of course, in Luther's day, there's kings. We don't have king over America, but... There are two different realms in which there's authority and Jesus is king of the spiritual realm and the political reality is, well, I, I'm just, I'm a person, we're living in the real world, I've got a real job and, and, and so I just kind of have to make do with what I can. This is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if, if my kingdom were from this place, if my kingdom were like your kingdom, what would my servants do? I would have showed up here with an army and we would have fought and I would have overthrown you. But what did Jesus have walking behind him? Instead of an army, he had what? Fishers of the men. Fishers of the men. That Jesus' kingdom is nothing like anyone has ever seen. There is something in this king that is unique, that is different. Not that he doesn't have absolute, and I, I need you to hear this, absolute and total authority over your life. Because he does. If, that's, if Jesus is your king, that's what king means. It's, that's, that's the word, right? But there's something new going on in Jesus' He is saying, I'm a different kind of king, a different kind of king. So in this moment, he's challenging Caesar. He's challenging political realms. He's challenging kings and armies and generals and all of these sorts of things. But he's doing it, doing it differently. Now politics, if you've been paying attention, even if you haven't, you probably know this to be true, politics is all about self-aggrandizement, right? That's what it's all about. You have to make yourself look better than this guy. And how are you going to do that? You're going to do it the most effective way possible. Half-truths, sometimes outright lies, against this person's half-truths and sometimes outright lies. We tell truth once in a while. Let's not disparage politicians too much. I'm sure there's lots of great ones and nice guys out there. But the, the, the job requires that I achieve power. And how do I achieve power? Right? How do I achieve power? Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. Wearing no armor. I don't know what Jesus was wearing. We don't have any photographs from that. No one had their cell phones out. Jesus did not have a selfie stick. (laughs) That's a funny thought, Jesus with a selfie stick. And I lost myself thinking about Jesus and his selfie stick. We don't know what he's wearing. wearing. Thank you. (laughs) I've always got the burns to back me up. Thank you. Feel that burn that's that's an okay burn. Good anyway, i don 't know what Jesus was wearing, but but he's been wandering the countryside for somewhere between two and three years, so he 's got like the rumpliest suit a- a- ever, assuming like he wore that because all good preachers wear suits. Um, I've never claimed to be good. Huh? We see something powerful in Jesus, and it 's a powerful word for you sitting here. Right now, for you are no Caesar, (laughs) right? But aren't we tempted to put all of our trust, all of our fear and all of our hope in the political baskets? You are not a CEO living in a high rise, but from the smallest job to the greatest job, I have seen people use manipulation, fear, lies, all of these things to rise the ladder of social success. We aren't tyrants, but I've seen many a home ruled by one. We aren't the rich and the famous, but my, do we love their TV shows and dream of possibilities. See, the whole world goes after one thing, and Jesus nonchalantly goes after something completely other, and he calls you if you're interested, if you've Seen the hollowness of all these other pursuits. To follow the king and the donkey. To follow the king whose mission is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news of the coming of the reign of God. And whose priority is that. And everything else is but a distraction. Everything else is a waste of time. Everything else can be set aside and torn asunder. It doesn't matter. Follow the one whose hunger is righteousness And purity. Follow the one whose disposition is mercy. Follow the one whose attitude is humility. Follow the one whose answer to all of the hate and all of the anger and all of the fear and all of the violence that we see tearing our world apart. Peace. Peace. You see, if you take a worldly position and you look at Jesus, he looks like a failure. In fact, Paul is honest about this. I love Paul. I love the scriptures because they're just so, so stinking honest. There's just no guile going on in the Bible. Paul says this, the word of the cross upon which our Savior died is folly to the world. They look on it and they see failure. They see loss. They see foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of the living God. Is that true for you? Is that true, church? The power of the living God so what does that mean this morning for you, O oh Christian? It means that Jesus is your humble king right here and right now. Every bit of your life, there is no piece of your life that can remain outside of his kingship and you properly called his servant. Not your home, not your work, not your computer. Not what you do at night, not what you do in the morning, not what you do during the week, not what you do on the weekend. No part of your life lies outside of his authority. He commands it all or he doesn't command it. And you've held it back and it's yours. And so the word to the church this morning is one that I pray you'll catch a hold of. It's one of zeal. It's one of power. It's one of saying, I am all in. I love what Jesus says in the way that Luke tells the story. He says, those who who will come after me must take up their cross and daily follow me. Because today, there's a temptation on your life. I don't know what it is. I can't read your mind. But I know there's one. And tomorrow, there'll be another one. And the day after, there'll be another one. And there'll be some priority. There'll be some busyness. There'll be something that calls to you and says, man, you're too busy for this, Jesus you got better things to do. This is too good to pass up. You need this. And you have to crucify it. You have to crucify it. What does this mean for those of you here who aren't Christians? It's a message of hope. It's a message that should make you stop in your tracks and say, Man, this is what God did. God took on flesh, and instead of riding the horse of war... He comes on a donkey, humble, to bring salvation that he has not only humbled himself, but he will humiliate himself. He will be stripped naked and beaten and hung on a cross simply because this is true. God loves you. And he appeals to you through his son that you might see the great lengths of his love and respond to salvation. But there's another warning that sits at the edge of this story because we still use the word king. And though Jesus came to Jerusalem that day riding on a donkey, he will come to Jerusalem again, this time riding the horse of war. And in this day, he will judge his enemies. He will judge and he will make war against the kings of the earth and all those who have not given their lives to him will be defeated before him. And so this is a warning for those of you who call yourselves Christians, and those of you who don't call yourselves Christians at all, because we could call ourselves Christians and it could be false, right? It could be untrue. And a warning for all of us then is to say, if Jesus is king then, he is king now, and he will be king in the future, and he will come again, and he will set his kingdom aright. He will judge us. So we ought to seek the Lord's face while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. So let the wicked forsake his ways, let the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let us turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on us, to our God, that he might abundantly pardon us. This is what Jesus demonstrates in his his parade into Jerusalem. And from his point of crossing into Jerusalem's borders and going into the city, he's not done in his demonstrations. He has another one. This time he goes into the temple. In his kingly procession, he declares Caesar no more. Caesar weak. Caesar done. He declares generals and powerful things and all those empires of the world, he declares them void, having no power or authority. Now he enters into the temple to take charge of the religious life of the people. You see, when he goes into the temple, he sees merchants selling animals. Now, for those of you who don't remember the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship God, you wanted your sins forgiven, you wanted to do these sorts of things, especially during Passover, you had to sacrifice an animal And let's say you don't raise animals or you came from a great distance. Where are you going to get an animal? Well, you're going to get it from the temple. And let me tell you what, they do not price match Amazon. Full price. More than that, you could bring your lamb that you did bring. You bring it to the priest and the priest takes a look at it and he says, boy, you know, there's a flaw in this lamb. I don't think he's quite good enough. I don't think I can sacrifice him. You have to go back out in the courtyard and buy, buy from them. And you might ask the priest, can you price match Amazon? No, we can't do that, right? Can't do it. So you go out to the temple court to buy an animal, but you realize that you haven't brought temple currency. No, you have the currency that everyone else is using. But if you want to buy something from the temple, you have to use their currency, which means you have to use a money changer. And just take a guess, a wild guess. Who do you think the currency exchange favors? You or the temple? What do you think? Probably temple. Right? So Jesus walks in on this, and he hears the noise of sheep. He hears the, the arguments of business. He sees money changers. He sees unrighteousness. He sees unfair scales. He sees all of this, and he's enraged. He's enraged. Now, Jesus isn't surprised by this. It's not like Jesus walked in on it, and he's like, oh, I had no idea this was going on, Right? Everybody knew what was going on. Everyone knew. So Jesus is again demonstrating something. What does he demonstrate? He demonstrates that Jesus can get ticked off. And he goes through and he flips the tables over the money changer and he makes a cord of whips and he beats those animals because if you ever try to move a donkey or a sheep or a goat, like, you don't do it by asking nicely. Right? So he's whipping these, he's moving things out, he is causing all kinds of commotion. The disciples are looking at this, and they're thinking, we're going to (laughs) die. We're going to die. Because the temples, right, they had guards too. They used military power as well. When you think of them, don't just think of them as religious leaders. They were also political leaders. And they're saying, what is Jesus doing? Right? And Jesus is just driving out. And he shouts at the top of his lungs, my house. Interesting, he says my house, isn't it? My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he drives them out and he calls the people together. He begins to teach and to preach and to proclaim. So what do we see in this demonstration of Jesus? In the first one, we we, we saw his kingliness, his kingship. In this, we see his priestliness, his priesthood we see that he is not happy with the status quo of religious preoccupations. Now, that was certainly true then, and we don't have any money changers that I know of. If not, look out, because I'm coming for you. We don't have that sort of thing, but we have our own religious status quo, don't we? We have something called a Christian music industry. like it's an industry. I discovered recently that VeggieTales, which... Uh, I never really liked a lot, but was a big part of like a lot of people my age they are growing up, has been sold to Netflix. So Netflix is now making VeggieTale videos. I I mean, they're not Christians. They're they're marketing Christianity to my kid, which I got to say is better than like the transgender superhero that they're trying to market to my kid. So I mean, you know, if I got a pick of two evils, but it's interesting to think that I'm a market that somebody could sell to. Slap Jesus on it, somebody's going to buy it. We have our own life where we know that it is Sunday time and we're going to go to church and then we're going to go home and we're just going to go on with our week. We have our own status quo. We have our own way of doing things. But, you know, I don't think that's what God is after. I had a friend of mine one time say to me, "Um, you know, I'm kind of afraid of, of like dying. And I was like, well, that's understandable. You know, we started talking about it. He said, obviously I'm afraid of going to hell, but I I don't really want to go to heaven either. I was like, well, that's interesting. Why is that? And he said, well, because I don't really want to spend my eternity, like, singing songs, like, to God. Like, it's like church for eternity. I don't want church for eternity, which might say something about his church. Hopefully, hopefully that's not what you feel when you come in here, but... But I, I, I think he's probably wrong. I don't know that we'll be singing songs for all eternity, but I thought to myself, or I think to myself now, because then I probably didn't, but now I think to myself, I just stand in the presence of God and glorify him forever? Dude, that sounds amazing. Like, I'd give anything for that to be what I get to do for all eternity. You know, I, I think that there are a lot of Christians out there who would enjoy hell a whole lot more than they would really enjoy heaven, because they're not really that interested in worshiping God. And my question to you this morning is when the disciples see Jesus and they remember the old prophecy and they attribute it to him and they say, zeal for my house will consume you. Is it the building? Is it the temple that Jesus is interested in? He doesn't care about the bricks or the gold or any of that stuff. The trappings don't matter. He says to the, the woman at the well, I want people who will worship me in spirit and in truth. If we can't say with David, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere, I'd rather be a footman at the door of your temple than to live in the mansions of the wicked. If you can't say that this morning, there's something wrong with your heart. And you need to correct that. Because the burning passion of every single Christian in this room this morning should be this. That God receives every word of praise and glory. I love the ending of the... The story here is, it's told in Luke, he's going up to, the, to, the, to, to, the, to Jerusalem and all the people are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees stop Jesus, and I think they probably do this out of a sense of self-preservation, not just because they don't believe it, but they say to Jesus, hey Jesus, you got to stop these guys. They're going to get the Roman military involved. You're going to get somebody killed. You are causing a commotion. you got to stop. And Jesus says, what? If I stop them, the stones will cry." For the whole of the earth is hungry to see the living God receive his glory. Is that your burning heart, too? What do we see in Jesus on this day of parades? We see in Jesus the King of glory. We see in Jesus the worshiper of worshipers. We see in Jesus an example. We see in Jesus an example. A king who says, if you would come after me, you too must be humble. We see a king that says, if you would come near to me and worship me and know me, you must do it in spirit, you must do it in truth. And I can't tell if it's true. No one around you can tell if it's true, but God knows if it's true. What's most interesting to me about what gave me pause as I read for like, I don't know, the 33rd time, the story of Jesus and the triumphal entry is that between his coming, uh, between the story of him going up to Jerusalem, this kingly uh, picture, and between him going into the temple and showing us this priestly picture, he pauses on the road. He pauses on the road and he looks at Jerusalem. Just takes it in for a moment, and he says this, or the text says this. When he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over its pain. He wept over its suffering. He wept over its sin. He wept over its brokenness. He wept over all those people who would not hear and obey his word. He wept over all those who were lost. He wept over all those people who thought they were pious, who thought they were living lives rightly, but who had deceived themselves and, in fact, had no knowledge of God whatsoever. He wept. He wept. Which is a profound thought to think that the creator of the universe the one who called the stars into being, the one who made all things, the one who sees all things omniscient, omnipotent, sees our brokenness and it causes him to weep. And what I hope you leave here today, if, if you forget the kingship and if you forget the priestliness, remember the love. Because we see in God a love that never fails and doesn't give up, a love that is so deep and tender that it sends his only son to the cross, a love that is so meaningful and so deep that it changes lives and heals broken hearts and causes miracles, a love that is reaching out to you in this moment, right here, right now, pleading with you to hear his voice, to come and to be saved. And if you're here today and you already are saved, to fall on your face and worship and to have that same heart That same beating heart, I fear this too, that we as Christians who have received all of this grace, all of this love, no longer weep for the lost. We don't look at Portage and weep for the brokenness, weep for the drug addiction, weep for the families, weep for the people who will never hear the grace of Jesus Christ. And we go on, we go on. We ought to weep with God. And that weeping should cause us To do something about it. Cause us to start a conversation with somebody or invite somebody over or pray for somebody. If you don't even have the courage for that, pray for somebody. Pray for our city. Pray for the lost. What do we see in Jesus today? Man, I see so much I can't even take it all in. Can't even take it all in. I have more to talk about, but our time is over and I feel like I haven't even begun. This morning uh, in Sunday school, we are encouraged: wherever you are, take the next step. Wherever you are, take the next step. Wherever you are, take the next step. If it's to accept Jesus as King, accept Him as King. If it's to walk in holiness, walk in holiness. If it's to see this world and weep with God and do something about it, then see this world and weep with God and do something about it. But don't let today go by. Don't let this holy week on which God gave everything that you might have something, don't let this week go by doing nothing. Make a change. Let's stand and worship our God.